welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. The very fact that an unqualified demagogic racist could be close to the presidency tells us less about the candidate and more about the shape and mood of America in the 21st century. The red-blue divide, after all, is not about pure politics. It's not about classic liberalism versus Burkean conservatism. It's not Disraeli versus Gladstone. What we see in America today is a cultural divide, one in which our own personal experience breaks out and defines itself into a kind of moral and political matrix that both traps and defines us. These principles are universal and enduring. And perhaps if we can better understand them, we can, if not accept, at least have compassion for the better angels of our opponents. That's exactly what my guest, Arlie Hochschild, has tried to do in her new book, Strangers in Their Own Land. Arlie Hochschild is one of our most influential sociologists. She's the author of nine previous books, including The Second Shift, The Time Bind, and The Outsourced Self. It is my pleasure to welcome Arlie Hochschild back to this program to talk about strangers in their own land, anger and mourning on the American right. Arlie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. It's my pleasure. It's great to have you here. First, tell us a little bit about what was it about this notion that interested you four or five years ago when you started this project? What, what did you see happening? Well, I, I was beginning to feel anxious at um, how uh, at a level of incivility in, in politics that Congress also was drawn to a great halt and all of my uh, liberal goals seemed halted too. I mean, how would you get parental leave? How would you get, you know, um, more kids and Head Start? How, how would you do these things when a growing movement in the country was saying, actually, we want to uh, abolish, uh, you know, the EPA and Department of Interior and Health and Human Services. We actually, actually don't want any of of that, and I thought, wait a minute, I better back up uh, and and learn something here. Um, and I felt very much in an enclave. I have long taught at uh, UC Berkeley, Berkeley, California, red state, and I thought, you know, we're in enclaves, all of us, and I've got to get out of mine and find an equal and opposite enclave, one that's just as far right as, as, as Berkeley has left, and, and open my ears, take my alarm system off, really get to know people. So it's been the most extraordinary project I think I've ever done, and uh, taught me a lot. When you thought about it in far-right terms, as you just said, did you think about it in a political context? Because certainly if we look at some of the, the attitudes that, that you found and some of what we're hearing today, it's not far right in the classic traditional conservative sense. It, it's a different kind of social and cultural construct. Right, right. You're completely right about that. And, you know, um, when I first decided where to go, I thought, okay, where am I going to go? Where has, who, who has moved right the fastest? Well, that would be white people have, have moved from the Democratic to the Republican side. I thought, okay, so I'm going to talk to white people. Now, where? The South has been where this has been the most pronounced. Okay, the South, but where in the South? And then I found this study uh, of um, 
2012, uh, proportion of whites voting for Obama, it was 46% among whites in California, it was 29% of whites in the South as a whole, and it was 14% of whites in Louisiana. I thought, okay, now Louisiana's the super South. <laughs> Let me go there. And as luck would have it, I had one contact. So I just parachuted in. And when you got there, talk about the sense of, of alienation initially, of, of being a stranger in a strange land. Yes, well, <laughs> yeah. You know, Jeff, you're right. I myself felt a little uh, like a stranger in a strange land. So much seemed seemed different. I mean, there were no recycling cans. Uh, there were not small electric cars. There were, you know, large trucks. There were um, some uh, don't tread on me um, signs. There were as many churches in Lake Charles, which is where I started, as there are coffee houses in Berkeley. And in the largest bookstore in town, there are three aisles of um, Bibles of different colors and different font sizes, some for children, some for the elderly, um, Bible study notebooks. I thought, wow, I've got to learn about this. This is a bigger part of the, of the culture. And I, I found a lot of different ways to get to know people, but one was um, going to, I got invited to uh, Republican Women of Southwest Louisiana. And first of all, to be in a meeting where it's just women, you know, they do that. And then it began with the flag salute with under God back in and a prayer. And then um, a speaker would speak on, um, you know, Republican speaker. And there would be a gun raffle going on. So I felt <laughs> the premises of cultural life. At first, I thought I'm going to go to a location where there are a lot of right-wing people. But then I found, no, the whole context, as you say, the culture felt, it, it, the press, uh, for the newspaper, the television programs you could see there, um, the church sermons, all of it. It, it, was a, it was an enclave, just like mine was, uh, only it leaned right. And did it feel like being in another country? Yes, it it frankly did. With very nice people, incidentally, who were just as bothered as I was about the divide in our country. I mean, I uh, I would say, look, I'm, you know, retired professor from Berkeley and I've been really concerned about this division in our country and I've I've decided to get out of where I am and come and try and learn about you, is that okay? And and they'd say, yeah, that's weird. Well, first of all, they'd say, we're the flowers over state. People don't know about us, and they look down on us. Um, but thank you for coming, and yeah, we're worried about it too. One woman said, you're my first Democratic friend. <laughs> so, yeah, they were actually very friendly and eager to tell me about themselves which was my first discovery. And as they started to tell you 
about themselves and about what it was that was driving them, what it was that was making them angry, what it was that was making them concerned. Talk about some of the initial things that you started to realize early on. Yeah. Well, early on, um, I realized uh, how how they felt seen by people like me that I hadn't realized uh, before. For example, um, I uh, at this meeting of Republican women of Southwest Louisiana, across the table was a, a gospel singer, uh, and uh, she said, "Oh, I love Rush Limbaugh, the radio mm-hmm. uh, right wing radio host," and. I, after a moment, said, you know, I'd love to talk to you about that. You know, could we could we have tea or coffee this week? Yes, sure. So we did. And she said, um, oh, I, I love him because he hates feminazis. That would be feminists. Um, and environmental wackos. You know, that would be environmentalists. So I took a gulp and said, well, tell me about that. And, um, and she, uh, after a while, said, is it hard to hear what I'm saying? And so then I thought, well, she's a real, you know, she's empathic. She's, she's picking up that, um, how, how I'm handling this. And I said, actually, which was true, no, it's not, because the purpose of my being here is not to, you know, try and convince anybody of anything, but just to learn. Um, and I am learning. And she then changed tunes and said, you know, I think I like Rush Limbaugh because he's defending me against the epithets that mainstream culture and especially liberal culture um, would hurl at me. I said, what do you mean? Well, you know, I'm pro-life, and, you know, it's the law of the land that uh, you can have an abortion. And I'm, you know, pro-family, and now people think of me as homophobic. You know, and I serve my husband on, he never um, fixes his own plate, she said. And so now, you know, liberal culture sees me as sexist. And and then she's a little rotund, and she said, "And you know, it, liberals have a different standard of what a good body looks like, and they'd see me as fat. So I feel that Rush Limbaugh, she calls him my brave heart. She felt defended against epithets. Well, that completely turned my head around. That's fascinating, you know? I had no clue. And when you heard that, how, talk a little bit about how you process that. Well, I began to um, cross what in the book I began to call an empathy wall. Mm -hmm. And I was always sliding down the wrong side of it. But the purpose of strangers is, is not just to relate facts. Oh, here is how Tea Party and Trump supporters, um, what policies they want, and here are the the characteristics of them. My um, project was uh, a different one, I would say a deeper one, of trying to 
climb into their shoes and see the world the way they saw it so that I could back on out and look at the circumstances that led them to feel that way and see if we couldn't find some crossover issues. And um, so when she, um, when she explained to me that she was hurt by these epithets, she didn't want to abandon her culture, but she felt being Southern was looked down upon. You know, they think we're stupid if we come from the South. Um, and that being religious was looked down upon as a growing secular tendency in the mainstream culture. She felt like a cultural minority group. And in fact, I came to see them as feeling like a marginalized tribe. To what extent, though, did you begin to see it, or did they see it, as, as in some ways being a minority because everything around them was changing, that, that the country was changing, that there were right. fundamental shifts taking place that were never going back, that they either had to adapt to, on the one hand, or hide from and be this cultural minority? Right, right. I think one man put it... Um, this way. We're changing too, but we want to change at our own pace. That's what he put, the way he put it. And he felt that, like uh, my gospel singer friend, uh, that uh, the North, you know, and still there are echoes of the Civil War and carpetbaggers coming down and telling them what to do and sort of moral wagging fingers um, telling them that they're wrong and bad. And they, um, so he said, you know, we want, we don't want to be told what to feel. We want to change at our own pace. So uh, to me, that just means um, well, maybe there's some missing conversations. I don't think we give up either, but... Um, they felt um, culturally colonized. Would you press them on this notion that often gets referred to, I suppose, as the what's the matter with Kansas notion, that, right. that their culture leads them to a politics that goes against their economic self-interest? Talk about where that took you. Right. That was the question that I actually began with. But how could it be that, you know, the red states are poorer states and they're um, less healthy, their education is worse, uh, life expectancy is lower, and at the same time, the red states receive more federal dollars than they give in taxes, and they um, resist and denigrate uh the federal government. So I couldn't put that together. And in Louisiana, I was in a uh, hyper example of the red state paradox because in Louisiana, it is now, wasn't when I started, the poorest state in the union. It gets 44% of its state budget from the federal government. And um, in one survey, half of Louisiana voters uh, agreed with the tenets of the Tea Party. So it, it was like an exaggeration of the what's the matter with Kansas question. So what's the matter with 
Louisiana question. And yet, the closer I got to it, uh, the closer I I came to saying, well, wait a minute, what do I mean by self-interest? Are we, you know, it's the... Is this my imposing on them what should be their self-interest or what did they feel was their self-interest? What was their emotional self-interest? And I, I came to feel that actually we've left culture out of the picture. We just look at the economics of it. And they don't. For them, you know, culture uh, was huge. And uh, they felt like... Um, estranged from their their own uh, identity uh, in mourning for it. And that was the big thing. It trumped everything else. Uh, and it got me to thinking, you know, we're cultural too. I mean, a lot of liberals happily pay taxes. It's a pain. You know, you could do something else with that money. But we believe in the public purposes to which those taxes are put and, uh, you know, better schools and um, museums where the hours are, are open and they're innovative programs. We, uh, outreach programs, we're proud of that public sphere and we believe in it. And so don't begrudge uh, money for it. So we're not really acting in our, quote, economic interest either in a certain way. Um, interests are cultural as well as economic. What was the, the biggest thing that you found that they didn't understand about you and the culture that you were part of? Huh. Um, I think they didn't understand. Uh, there was one presumption uh, that I would be arrogant, um, one uh, or hostile. I went to a high school reunion of people who were in their 60s who had for 30 years had met once a month to have lunch, and a lot of them were um, retired pipe fitters and uh, auto mechanics, um, and people, uh, bank clerks, are retired. A, a very jolly uh, group of from Lagrange High School, and um, they. Uh, I I was the guest of one of them, at, and who introduced me around. And when um, the person who was introducing me around said, oh, and this is Arlie Oakshield. She's from liberal um, California, and she really wants to understand the conservatives. I saw a look on the faces, you know, that that spoke volumes. Uh, they looked first shocked, then they looked defended. You know, the eyes became guarded. And... Um, and and hostile, frightened and hostile. And so I sat down, and um, it was a little bit of an abrupt kind of introduction. It wasn't how I would have introduced myself, but there there was. Then uh, they uh, said, oh, one woman said, so you 
uh, voted for Obama. I said, yes. And she said, well, my husband, uh, I turn off the television whenever Obama comes on. He's got a weak heart, and I I don't want him to have a heart attack. So the conversation began that way, and uh, it went on. And by the end of it, um, that same woman said, well, um, you're nice, but the rest of them aren't. (laughs) I said, no, actually, we're all like this. Um, So like that, I I learned how the the stereotype that was being imposed on me. One of the things you talk about, and and we hear a lot about anger uh, in this part of the country and among the, the people that you visited, certainly we hear a lot of the angry rhetoric in the context of this political campaign. But one of the things you say is that more than anger, what you found was a lot of sadness. Yes, that's completely right. And um, uh, anger is easier than sadness, I think, to for us to manage. And the sadness had to do with loss. They felt a lot of losses, cultural, as we've spoken about, also demographic. You know, there's fewer white Christians. You know, we're we're becoming extinct, and. Uh, they felt uh, economically um, uh, frightened and that they couldn't pass on to their kids what uh, their parents had passed on to them. And they, they were frightened and sad to see that, in a way, there, there was kind of a trap door to the economy. And people, these were generally blue-collar, um, but a lot of them, all of the people I talked to came from blue-collar families, but often they had struggled very hard uh, to get uh, college educations, had, had worked for those, and um, worked in jobs with very little vacation time, for example. Um, so that was their story. And, and then to see that all that struggle was for naught um, and, and that the trap door that under the working class was uh, that had uh, visited such a terrible uh, trauma for blacks was going to hit them, you know. And they were, yeah, there was a strong sense of loss. And, and they were sad about it, even the environment around them, which was an issue I came to focus on. Mm-hmm. Uh, um seemed like uh, they were strangers in that land, too. It was highly polluted, and uh, the companies weren't uh, well-regulated, and so it was a high rate of cancer. And they were being stoical about a lot of things, and they felt unrecognized that nobody... People were just saying, oh, you're stupid to have to put up with that, and not seeing the struggle involved in putting up with all the things they were putting up with. So they felt unseen, unrecognized. I think that's hugely important um, for us human beings. And I felt a loss of recognition as well for their stoicism. 
Talk a little bit about their kids and the millennial generation that grew up or that's been growing up in this environment and how do they see the world. Well, you know, mostly I was talking to older people because mm-hmm. that's who the Tea Party is. Right. And that's another loss that they're dealing with of of life, you know, or nearing the end. Um, um, but they were um, actually in the South. Kids are more similar to their parents than kids in the um, in the rest of the country. They're more likely to be close to home and uh, replicate the cultural values of their parents. So uh, I, I didn't know that, but I've, I've read that. Um, and uh, the kids that I did meet fit that pattern. And were they also suffering this sense of cultural alienation? Was that your sense of it? Well, I'm, I'm not sure I can really answer that, that question. But um, I, I, back to the parents, I, they were afraid of that for their kids. Mm. They were... Um, afraid of falling into a minority um, pattern. You know, one thing that's strange, we speak of the American dream, and it tells us what we should feel like. We should feel mobilized. We should feel on our way somewhere. Uh, We don't have to already be there, but we have to feel on the road that there. We have to believe in progress. I mean, every political speech in this and every other uh, uh, election really appeals to that set of uh, ideas about what we should feel. But what are we supposed to feel when we're afraid of losing and going backwards or not holding on to what you've got? People I talked to were all in that situation. One woman uh, who came from a very poor family and uh, worked her way up, great struggles, um, a highly religious uh, woman who had found great strength in the church. And um, she looked around suddenly. We were doing an interview in her living room. She said, a very beautiful you know, living room and so on. And she said, I could lose all this tomorrow. And there was that sense of uh, an absence of safety. So, uh, and others felt, look, I never got there and now I'm 60, you know. A lot of people would say, well, I earned, you know, 70000 a year and I didn't get a raise in the last 15 years. And um, this is it. You know, it's not going to get better. And it, it felt, I thought, well, 70, that's pretty good. Well, no, he was comparing himself up. And uh, there was a, a fantasy, actually, of doing much, much better. And they very much identified with the top. And I would hear the word millionaire um, kind of bandied about. I thought, what's that about? Well, one, one guy, for example, we were out uh, fishing in a boat, and he said, you know, if we could get rid of Social Security, people at our age, you know, you and I would be millionaires by now. I said, well, how about 2008? He said, even so. 
So there's on the on the one hand a sense of loss and mourning. On the other hand, what seemed to me unrealistic uh, kind of uh, imaginative leaps uh, into a world they weren't part of. Mm-hmm. How pervasive is the sense of pessimism, the sense of, of lack of faith in the future? Well, um, it's very uh, pervasive. A lot of uh, people feel very uh, patriotic, for example, there were flags everywhere, um, but uh, they felt that uh, the government was heading in the wrong direction and uh, that there was uh, a kind of a gulping down of um, globalization and all the hits Americans were taking from it. And they didn't feel like uh, the the government was their government. In fact, there was a kind of a secessionist thing. We need, we need, uh, we we don't feel represented and we don't like who's pretending to represent us. I mean, there's some of those feelings on the left, of course. Well, how did that play out in terms of their local politics? Do they feel they're oh, represented there? Yeah. Oh, it, this is so sad um, from my perspective. Uh, many of them were uh, great fans of Bobby Jindal, the extremely right-wing mm-hmm. uh, governor of Louisiana, a two-term governor, who uh, promised to um, reduce corporate taxes and eliminate corporate taxes um, and try and eliminate personal taxes and uh, cut the public sector and uh, so lay off teachers and uh, nurses and in public institutions and uh, to offer great financial incentives to the petrochemical companies that were expanding in Louisiana with the growth of uh, cheap natural gas, which uh, comes from fracking, imported and is processed by petrochemical companies into feedstock that makes a a whole bunch of plastic things. So it was actually a a moment of great economic expansion. So they voted for Jindal and voted for his second term of him. But at the end of the day, they were aghast and horrified at the result of it. The public sector was in shambles and uh, actually he had taken a great bet that the price of oil would be low and I mean high and uh, that that things would go forward um, economically but they didn't uh, and the economy has really crashed and they're trying to they're in deficit people who who uh, are in horror of being in deficit uh, nationally, found themselves in state deficit, you know, couldn't pay teachers. It, it was um, a tremendous mess. And so in a way, their, 
their vision. So there was someone who tried to give them their vision. They got it, and they didn't like it. Where do these people go from here? What happens next? Well, what they hope happens next uh, is that Donald Trump is elected president. I attended the um, primary rally in March uh, in New Orleans and uh, saw him uh, give a uh, you know, rousing speech and throng of people with the Make America Great Again signs and and the like. And I felt that I had spent five years studying the tinder, and now I was looking at the match that was mm. lighting it. And so their uh, view of and um, fantasy of what could happen if Trump was elected is that they would be uh, delivered from their woes and um, made and relieved from the feeling of being strangers in their own land. It would be uh, their own own land. Arlie Hochschild, yeah. the book is Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right, a journey to the heart of our political divide. Arlie, as always, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Great. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you.